Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. Gandhi said, your beliefs become your thoughts, your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your values, your values become your destiny. The deep importance of attitude is taught by George Mumford to pro athletes and prison inmates alike. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. It's known as being in your zone or simply in a state of flow. It's a frame of mind where a person feels energized, undistracted, deeply immersed in the present activity. It can be relaxing. And according to psychologist George Mumford in Boston, author of The Mindful Athlete, being in your zone can promote a high level of performance. The best way to describe it is that you seem to be allowing things to happen and in the process of things happening as they are, there's a way of being in the stream or being in the flow of what's happening and being able to make decisions and to be fully present. And one of the things that's very apparent is there's no self-consciousness. It's it's as if you disappear as an individual and time gets altered and things seem effortless. Researchers first began paying attention to flow in the 1970s when they interviewed artists who described the experience of becoming hyper-focused on their work. They get so absorbed in painting, for example, as to forget to eat. But we've all had moments of getting lost in a beautiful scene of nature or perhaps an especially enjoyable conversation. Actually, my first zone experience was when I was very young playing um, electric football. They had these little games that you line up the players and you plug it in and the vibrations make the players move. Little board. Your little board. And I, and I remember it was magical. It's like we, we were t- I was totally into it and, and uh, time all of a sudden I had to go home. It's like, where did the time go? Time flies when you're having fun, but it was just, just total engagement and the activity of the moment, moment to moment. And, but instead of it being these integrated moments, it's like a flow of moments of being pre- fully present, fully engaged in a way where self-consciousness is not there. George Mumford was raised in Boston's inner city. He couldn't always count on food being in the home. There was violence on the streets and alcoholism in his family, 
and for a time he battled addiction himself. At college, George happened to room with Julius Irving, who became the basketball star known as Dr. J, which only deepened his fascination with sports. But George was also intensely interested in spirituality, including Buddhist meditation and mindfulness. He went on to earn a master's degree in counseling psychology and to study how personal focus promotes high performance, which he now teaches. Some of the teachers I've worked with, some of the meditation masters I've, I've seen uh, or experienced, obviously the Dalai Lama, and I remember him saying his religion is kindness. So one thing that people say when they're in his presence, it's like no one else exists. So that kind of focus. As if he treats you. Like there's no one else in the room and there's no other thing going on but him being present for you in that moment. Uh, my experience when I first started working with the Chicago Bulls was I encountered Michael Jordan and I could feel his presence. So obviously he's operating on a different vibrational level or he was at that time. Here's Phil Jackson's lineup. Michael Jordan needs just five points tonight to pass Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the NBA's all-time leading playoff scorer. His ability to concentrate, focus, his ability as things got more chaotic, he got more calm. So that's an activity, seeing him doing that and uh, in action. There's one thing to have somebody's experience or, or presence when you're sitting and just being together, but it's to see somebody in action having that kind of presence, that, that kind of um, energy where he could just be the eye of the hurricane. So what's going on there when someone has the ability amidst mounting stress and chaos to actually become more calm. And Sean, of course, research, he talks about three things that have to do with somebody predicting somebody being really good in the work, you know, in, the, in their job and work. And one of them is optimism levels or, you know, um, what he calls positive genius, having in a, being in a high state of positive energy. Second thing he talks about is social support or, or community having that social support or social intelligence which includes emotional intelligence and the third thing he talks about is people who are able to see crisis as a challenge rather than as a curse and so with Michael that third one is is like the more challenging it gets the more focused and the more and that's consistent with being in the zone and being uh, comfortable with being uncomfortable. Keep moving out of your comfort zone, but getting relating to it in a way where you embrace it because you know it's skillful and it, 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 you have more access to power. We talk about second wind. You know, when you push through, when you think you can't go anymore, then there's another level you have more access to energy. And my suspicion is, and I was reading... William James, some of his his writings, and he talks about he believes there's a third, a fourth, a fifth. You know, we can keep pushing that envelope in terms of enhancing access to energy just by moving beyond our mostly mental limitations. And so even physically, when you push yourself compassionately, like a little bit out of your comfort zone, and you're huffing and puffing and your heart's beating, your physiology will adjust to the new level.
Perhaps the greatest human freedom is the choice we all have of where our attention gets directed. Do we focus on constructive thoughts and attitudes that widen and deepen our consciousness, or do we get stuck in unproductive and frustrating patterns? George Mumford says that part of attaining high performance lies in cultivating an ability to devote one-pointed concentration on what truly matters. He gives the example of an airplane pilot whose control panel has dozens of instruments, but only a few that must be continuously monitored. When that plane landed in the Hudson River a couple years back, when, when they had an emergency land in the river, they practiced that in the simulation, and, uh, and everybody knew. So that's what situational awareness is. Knowing what is important or what is appropriate to pay attention to, and then being able to comprehend what, it, what the impact is, and then being able to project what the potential outcome would be. So in other words, if I do this, then I'm going to get the result. I want given all of the things that I know. So you have to know what the essentials are. You have to pay attention to what the basic fundamentals or what the ba basic working relationship is. So for instance, so if we know this mind-body process that's connected, and if we perceive a threat that the flight or fight mechanism is going to be triggered, the old reptilian brain, and it's about survival. So if that brain is making a decision about something that maybe isn't so life-threatening, but we perceive it to be life-threatening, then there's no, we get emotionally hijacked, and there's no space between stimulus and response, and we just react. Like it might be somebody doing something, and we haul off and, you know, do something, and it's, oh, it's only a little kid, or it's somebody else, or it's somebody I know. I mean, you see people, I guess a lot of gun accidents happen in a home where people that live there get shot because maybe the person perceives them as being an intruder rather than somebody coming home late at night. But because of the that stimulus, you know, that reaction without the space, you just turn and fire instead of realizing, okay, wait a minute, this could be, you know, is Joey home? Uh, can I wait? Well, it, this is part of a, a large problem of people overreacting. That's right. Which, which we have in many realms of, of modern life, people kind of freaking out at something that doesn't really warrant that level of response. Is there a way that the, the mindfulness training can help people to, uh, to uh, regulate their reactions so they're not overreacting but are responding appropriately? Yes, yes, and that has to do with your current mind state or your, your mental proclivities or what you, your mental habits are. So if you understand that, then you can start to do what we call uh, wise reflection, reflecting on, okay, so in other words, if, if, I have, if I have rules or if I have some absolutes that, I'm, that are what, what we would call the five precepts, like not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to take intoxicants, and not to get engaged in behavior that's detrimental, whether it's sexual misconduct, or whatever. Those are precepts of Buddhism. Precepts of Buddhism. And of course, you know, we have the Ten Commandments. You know, not to cover thy neighbor's wife and not to, you know, not to kill. And a lot of them are similar. And what it's really saying is there's going to be times when there's mind states that are going to be 
where we're going to be triggered to do something that we might regret later. So if we know that the mind is capable of doing those things, we have to have a game plan that allows us to think before we leap, look before you leap, to really understand, okay, under these circumstances, I'm not to do this because it's harmful. Now, I may not understand it, but if I get in the habit of not doing those things, then at some point, the thinking will catch up and say, okay, yeah, I can see where that would be harmful, and I'm glad I'm not, I'm not doing that. This is what physician Herbert Benson calls inserting a thought in between the impulse and the action. Yeah, it is what, what Viktor Frankl talked about, the space between stimulus and response. We have the power to choose, but we have to have core values ahead of time. Okay, who do I want to be? How do I want to behave? And then having that color our perception in terms of what to do and what not to do. So being mindful uh, or having presence of mind in the here and now, in the immediacy of experience, there has to be a way of letting the situation speak to us, like presence of mind, like mirror mind, where we're just reflecting what's there. And so we're able to see it. So we're walking and there's a rope in the road, it looks like a snake. You know, so do we have the courage to look closely and say, okay, what is that? But if we think, oh, so-and-so said there was, you know, there was a snake in the neighborhood, you're going to be predisposed to see a rope as a snake. So if you understand, okay, how do I separate what I think from what is actually happening? So in order for that to happen, there has to be an ability to just see things as they are or to let things speak to you. So if you look at it, roping is not moving, it's probably not a snake. And it can be very easy for the mind to project a kind of fantasy. And we do this all the time with each other, with ourselves. We are not dealing with things as they are now. We're dealing with things as we think or as we expect them to be. Now, one of the roles that you describe in your book, The Mindful Athlete, is that of the watcher. Right. Someone who is able to step back and look at the big picture and get some perspective and not become so wrapped up in the intensity of the emotions of that moment. Right. Does that take practice? And, and Yes, yes. Um, actually, Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet, he called it uh, setting self aside. There has to be an ability to step back, step aside, you know, to, to just be able to watch what's going on without being the activity itself. So there's, there's what's going on, and then there's the ability to step back, as I call the eye of the hurricane, to be in that silent stillness. It's like this relaxed receptivity where you're allowing things to speak to, for themselves. So you just step back and you're watching it. So you see a thought comes into your mind, and you can see that it, it is a consequence of seeing somebody of, of observing, like sight. When it comes to one of the sense doors, there's going to be something that happens. And so when something happens, in order for us, like say you and I, I'm talking and you're listening, you could be hearing me speaking, or your ears could be working, but your consciousness is on, okay, I gotta get this done by a certain time, or I got so-and-so coming, so you're looking at the door waiting for somebody to come. You're not really there so that you can actually hear what I'm saying, so you have to have the air, you have to have the object, which would be my voice, and you have to have consciousness all there at once in order to see it. 
We're exploring how a strong ability to concentrate enhances personal performance in many realms, including pro sports, where George Mumford has taught the art of focus to professionals. He's author of The Mindful Athlete. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to download audio of this program, The Power of Concentration, you can visit us online at humanmedia.org. George Mumford was a student athlete at the University of Massachusetts, but a series of injuries diverted him from pursuing a career in professional sports. Pain medication helped set the stage for a pattern of substance abuse from which he's now maintained continuous abstinence for decades. But George says his bout with addiction was like being in a personal prison, an experience that prepared him for another chapter of his work. Can you talk about your experience of teaching meditation to prison inmates? I know you help them learn how to detach from what you call outside provocations and habitual patterns of reaction. Right. That's got to be a pretty huge skill for anybody to develop, particularly somebody who's behind bars. So being incarcerated is obviously one of the the most difficult environments uh, for learning much of anything. Uh, What are the particular challenges for people that you teach there? First challenge is to accept the fact that they're in prison. Because you can have inmates in prison for up to 10 years and still be in denial about about being in prison. And the reason I say that, I was teaching at a particular institution that was built as a result of the Willie Horton uh, situation where he got released and he murdered and raped somebody. And so they have this one prison that they used to put all the lifers in. So I used to go and teach in this prison with all the lifers. It was totally different than teaching with the other populations because these guys knew. They used to thank me for coming in there. So they knew they're not going to get out of there. So they had to decide if they were going to do time or have time do them. So they decided that while they were in there, they were going to do work on their inner game or their inner life and try to accept and be the best person they could be given their circumstances. And this is consistent with what Viktor Frankl talked about when he talked about being in the concentration camps, that that you, between stimulus and response, you can choose to to not have liberty because you're locked up, but you can have freedom, which is your mind. You can control your mind, so you can experience freedom even in prison. And I actually had a lecture I called Prison as a State of Mind, because it is a state of mind, because there's people who have liberty that are, that are in prison because I was in prison with 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 that substance what was ruling me telling me when to what to do and who to spend time with and how to spend my money and how to uh you know occupy my time so a lot of so it's about freedom so whether you're in prison or not so going in there and working with them that was totally different the general population cuz 90% of them have substance abuse issues we're talking about substance abuse and how can we uh, deinstitutionalize them because a lot of the recidivism rates have to do with the fact that if you have somebody locked up for 15, 10, 5 years and you're telling them when to go to the bathroom, when to eat, when to sleep, that when they get out, they're still looking for somebody to tell them when to get out, when to 
eat when they sleep. So you have to, so they have to understand how are they going to prepare so when they get out there, they can create space between stimulus and response and make choices that are consistent with them being, staying out of prison and then being able to, because their lives are diff, difficult because they can't just get a job like other people. So they're going to have some challenges. So they have to figure out that it's an inside job. They have to figure out how to use their mind in a way that helps them to pursue our happiness based on their condition. And so is that monumentally difficult to, to train somebody who's in prison, who's both physically imprisoned as well as mentally? I, I think, yeah, people keep thinking it's the, the environment. It's really the willingness of the person, whether they're in prison or not, to be open and be willing to be vulnerable and to be influenced. It's hard for those of us on the outside to imagine the emotional nightmare of being incarcerated, a plight currently faced by more than two million Americans. But psychologist George Mumford says even in those harsh conditions, human beings exercise certain choices. Okay, let's talk about three inmates. First one is Adolf Hitler. He, he wrote Mein Kampf when he was in prison. Okay, so we know how that turned out. Okay. Then we have Nelson Mandela. He's in prison for what, 30 years, something like that. And he came out and he was working in prison how he could relate to people who were abusing him in a loving, compassionate way and transform those relationships. I remember watching the movie Birdman of Alcatraz and the the correction officer that worked with him, they had a relationship. And and it's and in those days they had that relationship because they can relate to the human quality. Third person I want to talk about is Malcolm X, who was in prison in Massachusetts. Here, he learned how to read in prison. And he he I remember reading a quote. He said, "Man can do a lot of thinking in prison because there's nowhere to go, and sometimes freedom is just another word for nothing else to lose. So when you're locked up and you got nowhere to go." There's not necessarily anything to do. It's a great opportunity to say, okay, why don't I look inside and see what's what I can do? So there's there's a lot of potential there because because you don't have liberty, but you have a mind, and it depends on how you train the mind and, and how interested you are in transforming. But you have to have some inclination that is doable and it's important. Otherwise. Why not? So I, there's people out here that are free that are not free because they're not willing to be vulnerable, and they and they keep doing the same thing that they're doing, expecting different results. We call that insanity. But there's a lot of us that do that. Maybe not totally, but in some area of our life, we will see that we struggle because there's there's an inability to see clearly, inability to even come to the idea that the universe is a friendly place or that I have an opportunity to change my situation if I don't like it. And is that inability to see clearly fear-based? Yeah, if you want to, yeah. Some people I've heard, especially in, in, like in The Course of Miracles, they talk about fear and love. So there's just two sides of, of a coin. So fear, which they say is false evidence appearing real, or love, which is openness, open heart, open mind. How can I be more loving? How can I be more present? How can I be more myself? 
my unique self that that's here you know can i as martin buber say, said in his book the way of man can i hallow the piece of earth that i'm granted where i stand can i can i be can i make it holy can i can i release that isolated uh divine spark that's encased in this shell and that we practice hiding out from ourselves and others and that can we break that shell open and and realize that you know we can connect to ourselves and others and in a way rather than hiding out or being i me and mine what a great question to ponder can i hallow the piece of ground on which i'm standing question we should all be reflecting on every day. You have a fascination with water. You've said it responds rather than reacts. It literally flows, it's powerful, yet it yields to the lay of the land rather than exerting unnecessary force. In fact, you say it actually gets its force through yielding. Right. Can you explain that? Like a palm tree, a bamboo tree, the wind blows, it bends, but then it comes back. So what I'm saying is, like, be like water. Just flow with things as they are, and the water will eventually wear it down so if you're confronted with um an obstacle like for me i've been trying to write a book for 20 years and then i stopped trying to write a book and it wrote itself that's like water keeps coming doesn't stop and but it keeps flowing keeps going in in the direction of of it's allowed to go and it just makes its own groove it makes its own way so and if you think about it you know most of our body is liquid <laughs> uh you know and i like to use the analogy of the mind being like like the ocean and being able to drop down below the surface where it's always calm and peaceful and there's an ease of being there so water is that one of the elements but it's powerful because we can't live without it you can go without food for a certain amount of time but water that's something different we need it. It's life-sustaining. So it's just this, it has no form, but because it has no form, it can take any form. So it's kind of like the mind. It's when, we, when it's empty, there's nothing there, but because nothing's there, everything is there. Thank you very, very much. We've been talking with George Mumford. He's advised professional athletes, including... Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, many basketball superstars on the skills of concentration, meditation, and spiritual growth. He's also worked with prison inmates. George has a degree in counseling psychology and was a professional financial planner. He's author, 20 Years in the Making, of The Mindful Athlete. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate being here.
listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Alan Mattis. Editorial assistance from Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, Bond Collard, and Mark Kilstein. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, The Power of Concentration with George Mumford, is Humankind program number 228. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.